This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Have you ever thought about recording your own podcast? I know it took me a long time to get around to it, mostly because I was worried about the how-to, the equipment I might need, the editing that needed to be done. Well, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free. They have all sorts of creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone and computer. That great music you hear on my podcast is from Anchor. It was provided to me for free. I, I select it and add it to the podcast. I'm done. I've also been able to edit my podcast. They have easy features that make it smooth and pain-free to cut and remove certain parts of your podcast if you need to take them out or just add things. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard in places like Spotify and Apple, and you can even connect up other places like Stitcher. That's what I did. You can also make money off of your podcast. They give you a way to connect with sponsors it's really everything you need, and it's particularly great for people who are worried about the technical side of making a podcast. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me This. I am your host, Carrie Borkowski. This is a podcast that focuses on topics like belonging, building community, learning how to uh, present your authentic self, being willing to walk into these spaces, known and unknown, and be confident in who you are, and and start to really listen and learn from others and, and see how that, that sense of belonging that you bring into the room can also sort of um, be a contagion and, and lead to belonging and feelings of belonging for others. In this episode, episode seven, um, we will be talking about the teacher in the teaching. And you'll notice in this episode, like many of my episodes, that it'll be focused on education. But I want to say from the, uh, the get-go that I really believe that what I'm going to talk about has relevance and applicability across lots of professions. So as you're listening to this podcast, if you don't find yourself in the role of teacher in sort of the traditional sense of being in a classroom, certainly I'll bet in your profession, you're a teacher of, of sorts, a guide, a mentor, an advisor. But I'd also urge you to think about, you know, what you do call yourself in your role, whether you're a leader, a therapist, a doctor, um, I don't know, a trainer, whatever your profession and whatever you tend to sort of introduce yourself as, I'll bet you that if you replace, you know, the word teacher in in the teaching, you will find your own role and, and find the relevance to what I'm going to talk about. So really, this is more about remembering that there's an individual, a person in our profession. 
So in the last episode, we talked about the idea of pre-work. If you remember, we talked about, or I talked about the attributes of the environment, the spaces that help to cultivate these feelings of belonging that really are the crux of this podcast. And so I also mentioned how adjusting our language, you know, using words like curiosity and wondering, our entry into conversations, um, listening first maybe instead of jumping in and sharing something, and other strategies that I talked about could help to build important elements that are that are necessary to even start the work of building community and belonging. So this these include elements of trust, um, reciprocity, respect, even a familiarity. So this exchange of stories and hearing other people's perceptions or experiences with something. And an obvious one, but often overlooked one, just feelings of welcoming. You know, do you feel welcome when you come into a space? Are people introducing themselves? Are they listening to what you have to say? Um, Do they know your name? That's a really simple one that we'll talk about today. So with this episode and the next episode, I'm going to continue to build on this topic. And today we're going to explore uh, some of the specific pre-work related to ourselves, because I, I really believe that as we ask our leaders and teachers, advisors, facilitators to go into our spaces, learning spaces, community spaces, professional spaces, and do some of the work that we're talking about, we really can't do this well and authentically without doing our own work. So, so it's critical that to do, we know we need to do this work. We need to adopt a practice to continue this work. And perhaps it, it's around continual reflection so we can also grow and change. So if we expect our students or our coworkers, our colleagues to adopt this notion of growth and change and reflection and belonging, well, gosh, shouldn't we be doing the work as well? I mean, that's really what being authentic is all about. All about. So last week in Massachusetts was February break. Um, and this was new to me. I grew up in Maryland. So when we got to Massachusetts and, and I learned that our kids were going to have a week off in February, I didn't quite understand it, but I've gotten used to it. It's kind of fun. We, we do something different in the winter. And we traveled to Maryland, as I think I shared with some of you, um, And we were in a hotel. We were headed to Philadelphia to show the kids the Liberty Bell. That's a whole nother story for a different podcast. Um, But we were taking sort of a break. We had just gotten back from the pool. We were taking a break. And we were watching HGTV. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this. Um, I don't even know what the letters stand for. But suffice it to say, it's, it's all shows related to something around homes, renovation, building, buying, you name it, they have it. We don't actually have this channel at home. Um, I guess you could say I'm kind of cheap when it comes to cable. Again, that's another story for another day. So, you know, the kids actually really like this show. It's actually kid appropriate. So it's something that we could watch as a family. So we were watching one of these shows where this woman, um, I don't even remember her name, finds these really old houses. I think they were in Chicago. I don't know why I think they were in Chicago, but let's say Chicago. These really old houses in neighborhoods, um, you know, and wants to restore it to sort to the original look. So if it was like a house from the 1940s or the 1960s, or some of them are even like before, you know, eight, late 1800s, she, she really want, wanted to honor the look and feel of that era But then she also recognized that the clientele really likes the modern conveniences of 2020. And so it was sort of that combination of modern feel and original look. 
So she and her business partner would invest, I mean, a significant amount of money. I was, we were actually watching one episode. It was this huge home that she was planning to turn into like four, I guess, little condos, um, one, mostly one bedroom, I think one, two bedroom. And they were investing like a million dollars into these homes. I mean, this house was a mess. I mean, it needed so much work. Um, so crazy things happens. So we're watching and it occurred to me that as I was watching it, kind of like when I went and saw the movie Dr. Doolittle, if you listen to that episode, I have these weird moments while I'm watching these random shows. Um, but these individuals with this talent and interest, so so this woman and her partner, they really do have a talent and a passion and an interest for this kind of work, this renovation work. That It's amazing to me how they can see the beauty and the possibility in these unusual places. And really, when I say unusual places, for me, it's an absolute disaster and a mess, right? They walk into a kitchen, there's no refrigerator, the stove is barely there, and maybe there's a hole in the floor. It's just in their bones to take a risk. They're not worried about the mess. They're not worried about that hole in the floor. They're not worried that the fact that there's, you know, wires hanging out the side of the house. Um, they just can see all the possibilities and just get so excited when they find something that's just so unique to that particular time frame or era. Perfection is the furth furthest thing from their minds. Being good at the, these professions is not about being perfect. It's about how you respond to the adversity. So like, of course, in these episodes, one of the probably the most fun things about these episodes, right, just like any story, is they always hit a moment of crisis, right, where they're digging out the basement or they're breaking down a wall and they realize what? Well, they dig out the basement and they realize like the plumbing is actually more of a mess and they're going to need, you know, $20,000 more. They put a hole in the wall and they realize what they were going to expand into this open space is actually a load bearing wall. And now it means they have to do all this stuff to the ceiling. So they have this moment of dramatic, oh my gosh, all this money, what are we going to do? But then the sort of breakthrough moment is how they respond to this adversity. In these cases, perfection really can be the enemy of good or done, right? Because if they had my mindset, which is my type A, worried about being perfect, I would never start that renovation because I would look at every house and think, oh, that is such a mess. All I want to do is sweep the floor and cover the hole up, right? So why am I bringing this up? Well, because it made me start thinking about our work as teachers, as therapists, leaders, analysts, and many other professions. Thinking about the person in the profession. What are we bringing into these spaces? What is our, our mindset, our perspective on things, our approach to tackling a problem? And so thinking about the person in the profession, today in the episode, I'm going to explore this idea of bringing your authentic self to your work and your profession. Specifically, I'll talk about teaching. Remember I said at the beginning I was going to focus on teaching as the person and the practice, right? So the noun and the verb. And the implication of that shift in our thinking from it just being a practice or a craft or a profession to actually an individual and what we should or could be doing to attend to um, and grow the influences of, of the somebody who's doing the teaching in our classrooms. So for the episode today, I'm thinking the lessons are going to be around authentic approaches to our work, teaching as the person and the practice, and finally, as always, I try to bring an application to the episode, enacting this self-care and specifically, we're going to talk about this idea of discomforting dialogue. So I hope you'll stick around for the episode. I think it's going to be a good one. So this is, again, episode seven, teaching 
teach, sorry, teach here in the teaching, and I'll be right back. All right, I'm back. So welcome to episode seven, Teacher in the Teaching. There, I said it correctly. Today, we are going to talk about authentic approaches to our work, whatever your work is and however you define that profession. I am going to focus on the teaching as the person and the practice, and then enacting this self-care in the form of something that I read about this past week called discomforting dialogue. So, For thinking about authentic approaches to our work, I thought I would share a a story with you. And before I get into that, just a reminder that this idea of authenticity or authentic, if we define it, if I go to, I think I went to dictionary.com, it says that it represents, it's when you represent your true nature or belief, true to oneself or to the person identified. So it's this idea of being genuine, real, and true, really showing And I I would say the human side of things. So as I do often on the Tell Me This, I like to share a story about my grandmother. And so my grandmother actually worked in a grocery store. Um, It was called Pantry Pride. I would be really surprised if there was anybody out there who knew what that, that grocery store was. I don't think they're in existence anymore. But she was in Maryland uh, working in Pantry Pride. And I remember her as a cashier. So standing in the line with the cash register, you know, checking you out as you left. It's possible she did other things. But as a kid, that's what I remember when we would go visit her at the grocery store. There she would be standing behind her cash register. Now, she could have just done her job. She was really good at it. Um, She could work a register. She was very good at bagging the groceries Um, I actually always joke with my wife, Susan, that I like to bag the groceries when we go to the grocery store because I just feel like I have it in my jeans. Um, It it really bothers me when other people try to bag my groceries. I have a system and I'm convinced that that system came from my grandmother. But again, another story for another time. But, you know, as I said, my grandmother could have just done the job, right? I mean, it's, it's skills and knowledge, you know, how you do the cash register. Of course, there's some math involved and she was very good at math. And then this ability, as I said, I think was inherent um, to the downy genes that I inherited of being able to figure out how to situate those items into those bags appropriately. But my grandmother found the human side in everything she did. And what do I mean by that? She did not and probably could not just do her job. No matter what she did, my grandmother was a, she owned a laundromat. She and my grandfather, when they first got married, actually had a confectionery in the front of my grandmother's parents' house um, near Baltimore. And in everything she did, she couldn't just punch the numbers. So in the grocery store, it wasn't just that she could punch the numbers of the register, run the groceries over the scanner, and toss them in the bag. What did my grandmother do? Well, hopefully you could probably guess by now because you've heard a few stories about her. She always had a big smile on her face. She was always super excited to see people. And to be honest, she always acted like you were the first customer she was greeting for the day. She talked to people in line, shared her stories, knew her customers, and cool cool enough, she would follow up when they shared stories. So she was really good at, you know, a customer would come in on a Monday maybe and tell a story about something that was coming up that week. And when my grandmother saw them the next week or a few days after, she'd always follow up. 
Um, really a good sign, I think, of a listener. She just generally had a way of creating community even in her grocery store. Her customers, I bet, look forward to visiting the grocery store, not just because they needed food for the week, but because they knew that there was a friendly face, a tentative ear, and an interested person at the end of the line. I mean, even when we would go into the grocery store, I mean, she saw us all the time. But even when we would go in, she acted super excited, wanted to let me help her do something, would show me around. I mean, just genuine, authentic excitement. My grandmother just had a human approach to just about everything she did. She also understood that it's not always possible to separate the job from the person, even a job like being a cashier, right? I mean, that is clearly, um, I don't want to say like a factory style sort of job, like assembly line, because obviously there is a human side to it. But if you really wanted to come down to brass tacks, it's, learning how to operate a cash register, being able to do some math, learning how to scan the groceries and put them in the bags, right? There are some clear, discrete skills. But my grandmother reminds us that the person does not have to be the job, but the job and implementing the duties are informed by the person, their well-being, their dispositions, their successes, failures, worries, and joys. And as Brene Brown tells us, being vulnerable in this way right? Like sharing yourself, showing your true self. It doesn't mean that you're inappropriate. So let's be clear. My grandmother didn't just, you know, air all of her so-called dirty laundry to these customers. We need boundaries in all of our spaces and and our comings and goings. Um, But it did remind me, thinking about that story with my grandmother, that teaching is not just an act or a strategy or a pedagogy. It is a person in a classroom, a space, or an organization through which the strategies and pedagogy happen. If we do not care for this person, I think we risk damaging the delivery of the relevant tasks and strategies. Moreover, if we started caring for the person, we may raise the possibility that this person is able to create, innovate, encourage, and guide people towards their intended goals and other possibilities. So when I come back, I'm going to talk more about this idea of the person being a part of the profession and sort of what those implications are. And um, hopefully you'll stick around to hear the rest of the episode. Thanks. All right. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. I guess I'm wondering you tell me this. Um, are you thinking about how fun it would be to go into my grandmother's grocery store and have her check out your groceries? Or are you still contemplating why Carrie is so obsessed with bagging her own groceries? I wonder about that sometimes myself. So without being able to answer that question in the time we have left in the episode, let's take a look at lesson two, teaching as the person and the practice. So just by way of a little bit of background, I should share, and I think I shared potentially, I don't think it was last episode, but the the episode before, that oftentimes with these podcasts, something that I love when I'm preparing is I go down these rabbit holes. And if you've ever done a search for, I don't know, anything, a vacation, a big purchase that you're getting ready to make, maybe a computer or a car, 
this thing, the internet can be amazing because you have all these resources and information at your fingertips, but at the same time, it can be awful because three hours later, you realize you're still searching down that rabbit hole at that car or that computer or that vacation, hoping for one more piece of information that's going to help you make that decision. Well, I started down one of those rabbit holes when preparing for this episode. Good news is it didn't take me too long to find what I was looking for. I had started looking and exploring this idea of pre-work, right? That's what I've been talking about this episode and last, specifically around teachers. So I was trying to figure out, you know, the sort of strategies and training and supports that we make available to teachers to do sort of, I don't know, caring for our teachers, supporting our teachers and and this pre-work. And eventually I came across a short article that actually referenced another author. So just a tip when you're doing research, it's always good to look at the reference list of articles. You never know what you might find um, in that list. And I found an author, Jerry Kelcherman, and I apologize if I'm saying that incorrectly. It's K-E-L-T. C-H-E-R-M-A-N. He's out of the University of Belgium. I will definitely um, post this article on my website. I have a resource page on my whatsourstory.com website, and I'm trying to post all the literature that I reference in the podcast. And we also have made some resources available (coughs) just on the topics of belonging and, and other related areas. So I was super excited because he is speaking about ideas I've been talking about and thinking about for a while. And in the early 2000s, he was writing about the idea of subjective educational theory, which in a nutshell suggests that even with the training, knowledge, skills, and attitudes that we identify as important to teaching, this whole idea of teaching or the act of teaching, as I said earlier, is done by somebody. So all that training is influenced by our own contextual experiences. He calls it a personal system of knowledge and beliefs about education. He has written a ton of articles, but for this episode, I wanted to focus on one called Who I Am in How I Teach is the Message. Who I am in how I teach is the message, self-understanding, vulnerability, and reflection. And he wrote this in 2009. So when he opens the article, he talks a little bit about this idea of teaching and the debate that continues about, is it a profession or a craft? Is it an actual discipline? And, you know, he suggests that if we're going to have these discussions, these are important discussions because they... They matter for things like determining the social status of teaching, right? So this idea of a pecking order, how we look at our teachers, how we value the profession. And he says that this is critical not just for sort of hierarchical or pecking order purposes, but really when you think about recruitment, so being able to attract and bring new people into the fold of teaching, sort of being able to elevate the status of the profession clearly makes it more attractive. It's also critical for retention, so folks who are experienced and valued in the profession, being able to keep them. And the other thing he points out with respect to social statuses, it really matters because this also has implications for policy and how the profession is treated, valued, and funded by, you know, at the local, state, and federal level. Additionally, he brings up another issue, which is if we're going to call it a discipline or even a craft, um, he says, well, then we have to consider what's the content of the discipline, how is this content developed, and, and this is the piece that I kind of focused on, what are the implications for the person? And I think we would all feel pretty confident saying that the 
the discipline of education or teacher education um, is doing a really good job. We have some super strong, um, you know, teaching teacher training programs at the undergraduate and graduate level. So, you know, how it's developed and, and what we develop, I think, is being done really well in a lot of places. I think the, the nuance for me in this article was about the person and, and the implications for the person. So he does focus on this second point and more specifically the idea of teaching being done by the teacher, right? As I said, the individual. Kelcherman cites this other author, Russell, from 1997, who said that teaching, how, sorry, how I teach is the message. And so I had to stop and think for a second, how I teach is the message. And I was like, okay, for me, the way I interpret that quote is think about going to a conference or listening in on a webinar or, um, I don't know, attending a lecture. And let's say for simplicity's sake that the person um, giving the lecture, facilitating the conversation is going to talk to you about, you know, new strategies or best practices for using PowerPoint effectively, right? So many of us, I'm sure, have used PowerPoint or Google Slides at some point in our profession. And so, yeah, I'm up for seeing and hearing about that because I don't love PowerPoint, but I would like to learn how to use it better. And so you walk into the session, you sit down, it starts, and the person is describing some really interesting strategies. And at the same time, this person is just slowly clicking through slide after slide after slide. And now we're on slide 39 of a 40 minute presentation. And we realize that we're only halfway through the slide, so the slide deck, how I teach is the message, right? Does it make sense? It makes sense to me. Kelterman takes this a bit further and says that who I am in how I teach is the message. So again, this goes back to this idea of the noun and the verb, right? So there is both a person and an action in this work that teachers, leaders, instructors, others do that are facilitating these conversations or these learning moments. And Kelterman, Kelterman argues that the person in the equation matters and we should be attending to that person. He talks about a bunch of cool things in this article. I really encourage you to pick it up if you have any interest in this topic. But the piece I grabbed onto is around this idea, again, of this personal system of knowledge and beliefs. He suggested that this combination of self-understanding, subjective educational theory, the norms, and the how-to all come together to create this teaching. So let's circle back. So this self-understanding... So he talks about understanding as both a noun and a verb. So the understanding you have, but also your understanding as reflection. This subjective educational theory that I already said was sort of this personalized system of beliefs and knowledge around teaching. The norms, which refers to this, what might work here. So imagine you have a moment <clears throat> with an individual in your learning setting and, you know, you sort of come to a crossroads or something has to happen. And you're thinking to yourself with all your tools in your toolbox, what might work? And then the other piece is um, how to do it, right? So you say, okay, I, I might want to do this and then I'm going to use this mechanism. So this comes together to create the teaching that happens in the classroom, those boardrooms or whatever space you're operating. It's not as easy as just applying some pedagogical or education rule. It's not enough to learn a strategy. It's not enough to go to a professional learning session and now, you know, learn the steps to flip classrooms or problem-based learning or integrating technology to learn to learn those pieces. 
the person in this space is considering the effectiveness of any strategy or approach. But here's the crazy thing that that I, I found in his article. They're partly basing that effectiveness on their own contextual experience. So on the one hand, definitely evidence-based practices, evidence-based or research-informed strategies is where we're going, right? We want to make research and evidence more accessible to everybody so that we can be informed about the choices we're making. That choice, however, is not solely based on empirical evidence. It's also based on your own personal experiences. So if you had a really positive experience with lecturing or direct learning, direct instruction, for example, that might be your go-to strategy, right? So, and, and likewise, you know, if, if the situation calls for problem-based learning, but you didn't have a great experience with problem-based learning as a student or as an instructor in some work session, it may not be your go-to. Well, why do I say this? Because we as instructors make judgments about how to engage or not engage with a particular strategy. So if the particular strategy did not work, the person leading the class may not have the confidence or the evidence that it's the appropriate strategy in this circumstance. He also suggests that teaching is inherently vulnerable. He noticed that teachers are not in full control ever. No surprise to anyone, right? This is probably also true um, to leaders, to folks who facilitate um, other situations like coaching, um, or if you, if, I mean, if you facilitate or lead any sort of group, you, if you think you're in control, um, you're just not, right? He also said that teachers are vulnerable because they can only kind of prove their own effectiveness through student outcomes. So this notion that when, you know, when a, when a student leaves my methods class and now they're just really good at data analysis, well, maybe I can take some credit for that. And maybe people who evaluate me will give me a little bit of credit, but there's all sorts of variables that could play into that. So it's really hard um, even to prove my own effectiveness using my student outcomes. And the other reality is that teachers make dozens of decisions every day with limited knowledge. There's no way to have full information about students, the situation, the classes, and yet we have to make decisions, lots of decisions on a daily basis. So this committed judging and caring action attempts to open up these education spaces for our students. So much vulnerability. That is exactly how we would define vulnerability. So think about that, right? The teacher is in the teaching. It's not just the ability to carry out the craft or the, the activities or the actions or the pedagogy. There is a person doing this work and the person's experiences and their feelings around their vulnerability influence how they walk through these spaces. The other thing that he mentioned in his article, and you know, hopefully you know by now how much I love paradoxes. Well, here's one for you. The knowledgeable, planned, intentional, and pur purposeful actions to achieve pre-planned goals, right? So this sounds like classic education situation, right? You have knowledge and expertise. You've trained for this. You've probably created some sort of lesson plan or notes or slide deck. You're intentional and purposeful in your actions, so you've actually decided what you're going to do with the students, how it connects to the outcomes. And you have worked really hard with your colleagues, department chairs, and leadership to establish these pre-planned goals, right? You're going into this with eyes wide open and full plan. 
Yet, for this teaching and this learning to be effective, these actions have to allow for things to take place in meaningful ways for students just on the fly in that moment. I know it's a lame, it's a lame sound effect. This is a low budget uh, podcast, but that is my mind being blown away because this is exactly true. We plan and we plan and we plan, but really effective learning has to allow time and space for meaningful ways for students to connect that learning to their own experiences, to construct their knowledge together, to connect it to their their current schema, all those things that everybody listening probably know, right? It's a paradox. We plan, but we need unplanned, right? We definitely, I worry, and what I'm concerned about these days is that I'm not sure as good as our teacher training is that this is built in to the training. Even there are probably some really great programs out there that are doing this work, but given the age of accountability, I don't know that there's a culture there. So even if the programs are doing it, there's sort of this implicit message built into the age of accountability that um, we don't have time for this, right? That that you have to go in there well-prepared and try to control everything you can when the reality is that you can't and you shouldn't. I can tell you firsthand that we definitely do not do this kind of work for our higher education faculty. Um, and I just think that the teacher and the teaching is so vulnerable, and yet I'm not sure we're doing the self-work, that pre-work, to support our teachers and leaders and others in this way. So if you like this work, if this work is interesting to you or makes your brain a little itchy and you want to do some deep dives on this topic, I would highly recommend that you check out Kelcherman's work. Um, he's got lots of articles out there. I will put a few, as I said, up on the website, whatsourstory.com. When I come back, we will go from sort of talking about the theoretical or the research, if you will, and dig into one um, strategy or one option for attending to this idea of the person being in the profession. And so I hope you'll stick around for the last part of the episode. Thanks. All right, welcome back. So I talked a little bit about Kelcherman's work and this idea that, um, you know, the teacher in the teaching and this notion regarding, um, you know, who am I and how I teach is the message. So really getting at this self-understanding, this vulnerability. Um, and the last part of that article gets into reflection, the different kinds of reflection. So I wanted to unpack as our final lesson for the episode today. Um, this idea of discomforting dialogue. I know in previous episodes we've talked about critical reflection and the value of dialogue, and so I specifically wanted to talk about discomforting dialogue. Leonard Cohen, he's a Canadian poet and songwriter, talked and described, I think, in his songs and poetry, this idea of cracks and this notion that they destroy the goal of perfection, right, that you, you, cannot, you cannot reach perfection if you start with cracks, and that these cracks open up the possibility for new perspectives. So in order to take this in, this idea of cracks, this, this vulnerability that teachers face, this need to be experts and planners and achieving these pre-planned goals or pre-identified pre -ide pre goals, but at the same time 
having to create spaces that are organic and sort of just emerge, we really need to provide space, support, and training to have these discomforting dialogues. Being vulnerable, being unable to control a moment, knowing that some of the best learning is gonna require that stuff just comes up and that our students construct meaning and come up with questions that we just can't and shouldn't prepare for. That's probably discomforting to a lot of people. We as educators and leaders and facilitators, as parents, as friends, need to talk deeply, share and critically challenge our own perspectives, assumptions, and wrestle with what we believe and what we see as the reality. I just think only through these processes can we continue to develop our own, as Kelterman calls our subjective educational theory, to address both our needs and also the needs of our students. I know at this point in the episode, I'm not usually telling a story. I, I have done that already, and I did share the, the story of my grandmother in her grocery store. I just couldn't help myself, though, given the topic of this discomforting dialogue, because I'm going to be honest with you, the, the story I'm going to share is a personal one, and it is, it is discomforting for me, um, but I think it's important to share for others to hear. And I think the more I tell it, the less discomforting it gets. And I think that's part of the point, right, is to be authentic and sort of live our own truth. So as I said, I'm going to be honest. Um, some of you who know me well, I have shared with you that I suffer from imposter syndrome as an instructor, as a researcher, whatever professional hat I have on at the moment, a lot. Um, even with my years of experience as teaching, you know, I've published a few papers, the training that I've gone through and my credentials. I just do not always feel like I'm up to the task, whether it's research or teaching. And I'm not sure I'm all I'm worth worthy of this great responsibility of being a teacher. I think over the years, I've done some deep reflection into these feelings. And as I said, I still struggle. I mean, I think We'd like to think imposter syndrome is something that's like a one and done, right? You feel it, you get over it, you move on. I don't think that's true. I think that it comes up in different ways when we embark on in new territories or one of the, or when one of those new learning moments emerges with our students that we just haven't um, come upon before. So I still struggle, and I'm looking. I'm starting, however, to look at these struggles differently. And to me, that's the change. The problem isn't that I hit adversity or that I feel imposter syndrome. The challenge for us as leaders and structures, as professionals, is how do we respond to that struggle? Remember earlier in the episode, I talked about those, those amazing renovators, those creative minds, those designers who can see something and see that hole and see possibility. So don't beat yourself up because you feel imposter syndrome get on yourself and hold yourself accountable for how you react. So for me, this reflection that I've done and continue to do helps me to look at this struggle, the same struggle I've had differently. And that's most of the time. So when I started teaching, I pretty much carried around a pretty big chip on my shoulder. It, it, was, it was a big one. I thought really being a professor in front of the room that that person and me included had to be some sort of expert, a genius, had a record of, you know, being valedictorians, um, acing SAT school tests, getting the highest score on the GRE, all those things that you think come along with being an instructor, a teacher, a professor. 
uh, to be honest, my struggle at that time was, I'm going to be honest, and this is why this is discomforting for me. I am not a great test taker, probably the opposite. Um, I, I can remember, I can still remember in high school getting those SAT scores and some of my friends getting whatever the highest score was or close to the highest score, and I just didn't do that well. Um, I'm pretty good at economics, statistics, and the method stuff that I love, but it was a struggle. Um, maybe a better way to say it is that it didn't come naturally. Let's put it that way. The crazy thing is, is I loved it. I wanted to be good at econ. I wanted to be good at statistics and I wanted to understand and have a math mind and a methods mind. I wanted to know it well, but it took work. And at first I saw the need for effort as my failings as a student. But again, right, these, these, these mindsets that we have, it's not that they won't creep up, but it's how do we respond? I have come to realize that the teacher in my teaching, right, so the person is a person who totally gets the struggle and can understand and try to help others embrace the struggle and overcome it. So for me, my experiences, the, the sort of subjective educational theory includes all my moments of struggle and worry and frustration about who I thought I should be and why who I was probably wouldn't be a good teacher. But I've come to realize um, that that's not the case, that I am able to hold both, that I don't have to be an expert and a genius, that I have other ways and other skills and talents that I bring into the classroom. So I still get imposter syndrome a lot, but I do not wallow in it for too long. And more importantly, and here's where the application comes for today's episode, I'm attending to it and I name it quickly. I have some trusted friends that I will call on very quickly to say, "Ugh, I'm feeling it right now. If I'm working on a paper with someone, if I'm drafting something, you know, a proposal or a plan or, or a paper, a blog, whatever, I will pretty quickly say to the person I'm working with, you know what, I'm just feeling really uncomfortable right now, but I'm going to push through. I think that's why this topic of discomforting dialogue is so important. I'm a good teacher, but not because I'm an expert or do this work perfectly. It's really because I'm very aware of my own skills, abilities, and my limitations, and I've learned to use my experiences with all sorts of educational moments to support my own and my students' learning. So as I mentioned in an earlier podcast, I had an opportunity to participate in a four-week intensive storytelling workshop series. This is where I learned or started to learn to structure, tell, and share my own personal stories. I know some people will roll their eyes at me or think I'm crazy or think it's too touchy-feely or, or I don't know, some other word that's not sort of a hard science-y kind of thing. But I strongly believe that storytelling might be one way that we could start to identify, explore, and make sense of these cracks that we all see and experience. I mean, Donald Schoen, back in the 70s, started talking and writing about being a reflective practitioner. And this idea of reflection, critical reflection or otherwise, with Kolb, Mesero, and others, remains important in the education space and has made its way into the leadership uh, theory. I would like to see us enact this kind of practice more formally with professional learning like storytelling workshops, becoming really figuring out what it means to be a reflective practitioner and taking those practices to heart. We focus so much on the already defined skills and knowledge of the discipline, the craft, or the profession, 
I really think it's time we make space for new knowledge and skills around creating our own subjective educational theories through storytelling. And I appreciate you listening to my story. I did feel a little bit of discomfort in telling the story, but I think as you'll learn, if you start telling your own stories or writing them down, journaling about them, recording them, whatever that looks like, um, you'll find that it gets easier and better and more comforting to tell it. And I think the equally important to the process is you start to gain clarity and see things that perhaps you didn't see because you were so focused on the feelings of discomfort that you weren't able to really get the really important tidbits out of that story or that experience. So if you're willing to stick around, I've got one more piece of the episode. So I'll be right back with the final research and review and then the wrap up. So thanks for sticking around. Thanks for sticking around. I'm Carrie Borkowski. This podcast is Tell Me This, and today's episode seven is about teachers in the teaching. We've talked about authentic approaches to our work and being real and true and genuine, and that we don't just do the actions of a profession, that we bring our whole selves if we're being authentic. What it means to be teaching or as the person and the practice, and so we talked a little bit about Kelterman's work, and then finally, I offered a personal story and some some tips regarding discomforting dialogue and how storytelling could really make a difference in the work that we do um, as professionals, whether it's teachers, leaders, educators, therapists, advisors, or something else. So the last part of this episode, as always, I like to bring a little bit of research uh, to the discussion. We did talk about Kelterman's work, so I'm giving you a double dose today. Um, this is a this is actually an essay from a Brooks, Brookings Institute um, uh, report. It's called, the report is called Meaningful Education in Times of Uncertainty. And it was uh, published in August, 2017 by the Center for Universal Education, which is housed in the Brookings Institute. The particular essay that I was gonna just talk briefly about is by Kim Samuel, and it's called Caring Classrooms, Respect, Recognition, and Reciprocity. And again, I will post this on my website whatsourstory.com under the resource page. So if you're interested, please take a look at it. So Kim Samuels, it's a short essay, but she quickly introduced um, this idea of why we should be thinking about caring classrooms. And I think all of this will relate to the discussion I've had today with you about um, teachers in the teaching and sort of why we should be attending to this, this person who's walking into the classroom, not just the skills and pedagogy. So she quotes a few statistics that I found pretty striking. I'm, unfortunately, I wasn't that surprised, but it's always more powerful, I think, when I see it in the in the evidence. So she says that um, in a recent survey of Canadian undergraduates, 66%, so over two-thirds of Canadian undergraduates, reported being feeling and being very lonely. Um, she also cited a National College Health Assessment. I think it was a 2015 study, but I'm not 100% sure from reading her essay. But she quoted things that U.S. undergrads reported, 19% uh, of them reported that things were hopeless. Over 50% of the sample said they were feeling overwhelmed. And about a quarter of the sample said they also felt very lonely, similar to the Canadian undergrads. And finally, she reports a study of U.K. students 
And in those undergraduate institutions, they saw an 80% increase in mental health issues. Um, she goes on to say that students, you know, it's not just enough that teachers go in and really care about their work and are passionate about doing this work in higher education. It's that students need to feel that they're cared for. And she suggests that we consider as instructors and leaders this, these ideas of respect, recognition, and reciprocity. So that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it, given our conversation last week on the pre-work and trust and, and welcoming and things of that nature. So she defines respect as voices being heard and valued. Recognition is that everyone is seen and, and accepted. And reciprocity is when um, students feel like they have something to give, but also something to gain. So again, I, I picked this article partly because I just thought it was an interesting article and it was a quick read. So I always like to offer things that are pretty easy to get through given our time constraints. But I also love to find an article about about topics that we've been talking about and really care deeply about. She offers a few strategies. Again, this was a short article, so there wasn't a lot of depth to the discussion, but she mentions, and I had talked about it earlier in this episode, learning names. It's such a simple strategy, but so powerful. And I can speak from experience having run um, onboarding for doctoral students as a director of a master's program, having running orientations and things of that nature. It's just students and, and faculty too get really excited and I think feel a real connection when you they know you've spent the time to learn their names. Um, she also suggests that as instructors and facilitators of class discussion, whether it's small group discussion or otherwise, to really encourage new voices. And so I've heard instructors say things like, you know, if you are the kind of person who really likes to talk in a group, which would be me, surprise, surprise, um, try to be quiet and be a good listener. And if you're a person that is more introverted and likes to listen and is less likely to share their opinion, try in this activity to to bring your voice to the conversation. So using little strategies like that can encourage and invite students to bring their voice into the discussion. She, su she suggests collaboration where the groups are clear in that there's contribution and give and take from all sides so that perhaps I often do, just speaking from personal experience, I often try to get my groups where I know, you know, somebody might have a real strength in a particular kind of method, whereas another group member will be really strong with writing or another methodology so that as we move through the different activities, there's a give and take in those groups. Um, the other thing she mentions, um, which I've seen in other articles, is this notion of cha just changing the learning space. So again, simple strategies, changing formal lecture halls into big space, open spaces with perhaps chairs and circles or cornered areas where students can go and collaborate instead of it being rows of chairs and a lecture at the front of the hall. Remember, there's a message. The message is in how I teach. Um, so I think that also goes along with the learning space. The bottom line that she also mentions, which I find really interesting and really relevant to our discussions in this episode or this podcast, is that feelings of belonging and perceptions of belonging inspire students to change and heal the world they inherit. So she argues that if we can start this work in our classrooms or in our community centers or on our ball fields, um, that perhaps this will have a ripple effect out into the world and that we need to focus so squarely on how, what students believe about themselves. It's not just it's not just the learning, but their belief in themselves. 
So as I read that article and prepared for the podcast, I really thought and wanted to ask you to tell me this. Do you think this same article could have been written about our instructors and educational leaders? Do you think that our teachers and leaders and advisors and other folks feel that loneliness or feel that frustration? Um, I wonder if they would also express a need to feel heard, seen, and a part of something. Um, I, I can tell you, having been a faculty member at different organizations for a while, I've definitely heard this sentiment from colleagues at, at different places. So I, I, I don't think it would be far from the reality to think that we could write an article that would be similar, but from the teacher perspective. So what's my call to action today? Oh my gosh, I just, I feel like we've discussed or I've shared and, and talked about so much in this episode. I'm not really honestly sure where to start. Um, I do know though from previous episodes, and I'm going to try to stay true to my sort of what I've been what preaching, if you will, is that we need to come up with one and remember that this idea, how important it is to, to do some goal setting. So let's say this, I would ask you to map out a plan for telling your story. I know that's that probably conjures up lots of nervousness and anxiety for some people, and I'm, I'm sorry if it does, but even a small story. So what might this mean? What might a plan look like? So let's make it a little bit more concrete. So if you don't want to tell it to somebody because that just gets you really nervous, start with a journal. Um, pick a, you know, if you have Microsoft, OneNote is great. Um, you know, you could use your notepad. Um, you could just go out and buy a, a notebook or if you have a notebook lying around, you could use that. Just start journaling. You know, when you come home from work or when you have a moment at lunch, just and I'm not saying pages and pages, but like a paragraph, just write up a story about an experience you had with a colleague, a student, a neighbor, um, you know, a thought that you had, you know, and I think the key here is to write and do it regularly. If you don't want to write, but you still don't want to talk to somebody, try a weekly audio message. Um, you know, hopefully from listening to me that I love to, to talk. Um, but I was very nervous about doing a podcast. So for a while, I was doing audio messages, you know, two and three and five minute audio messages to practice and record those, go back and listen to them. You'll be really surprised, I think, and pleasantly surprised with what you can learn about yourself from listening to your own story. If you're feeling brave and you have a few trusted friends, um, Brene Brown likes to call them our marble jar friends. If you don't know what that means, Google it and there'll be lots on it, I'm sure. Just don't get caught down one of those rabbit holes. But call one of your marble jar friends, make a point to have coffee, set up a schedule to meet, even if it's just monthly or biweekly to have coffee or tea and share a story. Again, it doesn't have to be anything hard and deep. In fact, the folks that I did the storytelling workshops with argued that these first stories really shouldn't be hard stories that you haven't fully processed, right? This, th There are boundaries. Remember, Brene Brown tells us that boundaries are good and they are appropriate. So this friend is not your therapist. If you have stories that you need to work out in a more professional setting, then I would encourage you to do that. These stories really are stories that you are willing and able to share with a trusted friend um, to sort of reflect and really dig deep and, and learn from them. Start with something easy. Start with your day or a week ago, an event, just something small. What did you do with the day, your day? What did you do at work? 
What were you thinking and feeling apart from the skills and knowledge of the particular profession? So what were you thinking and feeling that might have influenced your, your walking through that space? What might you learn if you share the story with someone or if you reread it or re-listen to it if you don't want to share it with someone? What questions might they have? And what are you wondering about? What questions emerged as you listened to your story, whether it was in an audio message or with a friend or you reread it in your journal? I encourage you to get out there and share with someone. If you're feeling so energized and excited by this episode and you want to share your story with me, you could always email me at Borkowski at gmail.com. That's C-A-R-E-Y-B-O-R-K-O-S-K-I at gmail.com. I would love to hear your story. And of course, I would not share your story unless you gave me permission to do so. So you don't have to worry about that. Last thing, and then I promise I will wrap up. Stay tuned for next week. So episode eight. can't believe it'll be episode eight. I am super excited. I will be having my first official guest on the podcast. My good friend, colleague, and a former student, Lisa Mitchell, will join us to talk more about this idea of pre-work and setting the stage for building trust, welcoming, familiarity, and psychological safety. So finally, this week in your comings and goings, always remember that we are works in progress. So share your story, embrace your story, and always keep learning from our stories. I'm Carrie Borkowski, and this is Tell Me This. Thanks so much for listening. Do you want to simplify your school's technology? save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.